0: Listening to the Weekly Brew.
1: weekly brew your source for political social and sports commentary brewed up in an hour and less i'm austin stat and i'm joined this week by kevin cook jeremy paxton and finally we welcome back zach taylor after a brief hiatus zach it's good to have you back thanks guys good to be back so kevin jeremy how was the week
2: well, I got to uh, see some Texas high school football uh, playoff action, which this will be the first time I've ever covered that, and it is a whole different ball game. So uh, one of the teams I uh, was at, Cy Falls, hadn't been to the playoffs in two years, and they notched a 72-6 victory over Nimitz that was, uh, I mean, every kid on the team got to play. It was really uh, inspirational is maybe not the word, but very pleasant to watch, very enjoyable. I've gotten to know the coach, Kirk Eaton pretty well, and it was just an all-around great victory. So uh, my job's kind of picking up this time of year, and I'm really enjoying it. Jeremy, what about you? How was your week?
0: Uh, Week was pretty good. Um, I was a little disappointed uh, yesterday. Um, Our Baylor Bears did lose to the OU Sooners uh, in a 10-point loss, so not totally unexpected given our situation at quarterback um, and a couple of positions where we were lacking our starters. But uh, yeah, pretty bummed about that, but otherwise it's been a a good week.
1: On a brighter note, last week we told our listeners that we had a new sponsor, desserts. And it turns out that several of you actually stopped by We Desserts to get some sweet and delicious treats. Kevin, you want to tell us about that?
2: So I am in contact with We Desserts. It's a terrific uh, restaurant bakery, whatever you want to call it, on 3411 Kirby Street. Um, and so this is, uh, they sponsor of the podcast and, and, and support us. And they now serve hot New Orleans style beignets on Friday and Saturday. So a couple of notes. Um, apparently three guys went in on, I believe, a Monday or a Tuesday uh, wondering about beignets. Uh, and ended up buying some products anyway. So thank you guys, whoever that was. Um, it's just Friday and Saturday they do beignets. They do them all day and they're delicious. And uh, on another note, uh, another listener came in and I guess his approach was to um, walk to the counter and tell the, um, the clerk that he gets 10% off. And so I was going to say to listeners, you do get 10% off if you listen to the podcast. That's totally legitimate. But a better way to lead into that might be, hey, I heard about this place on the Weekly Brew podcast. Um, is it true that I get a 10% discount rather than just sort of opening with I get a discount? Because there was some confusion uh, in the early part of that conversation about what the discount was due to. So, just, uh, you know, thanks guys for going in and supporting the bakery. Um, maybe a better way to handle that might be, hey, you know, I heard about you guys on the podcast and that's why I'm here and you will get that 10% discount. Um, so, beignet days at We Desserts, Fridays and Saturdays all day long, located at 3411 Kirby. And again, if you mentioned you heard about them on our podcast, you do get ten percent off your purchase. That's uh, hashtag Beignet Day, hashtag Be There. We're gonna be tweeting some stuff out about that. So, uh, so yeah, thanks for supporting us, and thanks for supporting We Desserts.
1: Speaking of social media, Twitter, and Facebook, just a reminder that our listeners can follow us at facebook.com slash weeklybrewcast. You can also follow us at twitter.com slash weeklybrewcast. And uh, Kevin this week actually set up an Instagram account. So if you're on Instagram, you can follow us again at weeklybrewcast. And uh, another thing that we also want to remind our listeners is that you can search for us on iTunes if that's the platform that you're using to listen to us on. We want to make sure that you actually give us feedback uh, subscribe. Let us know how you feel. And Kevin, I thought you provided an interesting motivation last week for our potential listeners. Do you have anything to motivate the listeners this
2: week? Last week, it did seem to work. We do have a new review. Shout out to uh, cpax 87 Thanks, buddy. We appreciate you weighing in. Um, so that helped to a point, but really not as many reviews as I would personally like to see. So this week, I'm going to go a little more negative. I'm disappointed in our listeners um, there hasn't been an outpouring of reviews and five-star ratings like we had hoped. So guys, you know I love you because you listen to me, but I wish that you could do better, and I'm encouraging you to do better. So go to iTunes, go to ratings and reviews, click five stars, give us a little paragraph. Um, Austin said last week, tell us which host is your favorite. I'd love to play that game. Um, so anyway, just that's what we're looking for this week, is reviews and, and sharing our social media stuff you know, so that other people can enjoy what you enjoy. So uh, you know, last week, I was a little more encouraging. This week, i'm i'm disappointed and you guys need to step up kevin likes to be interacted with on social media so uh, kind of help a guy out you know give him some ratings and
1: reviews i think it'll help him a little bit emotionally as he you know powers through the work week so uh, do kevin a favor do us all a favor we know you like the show uh, we know you like to listen just uh give us a brief feedback on itunes again you can search for us at the weekly brew all right folks we've got a packed show on deck it's time to sit back grab a drink listen and be informed let's start with the big lead the big lead this past week we had discussed and prepped for a variety of topics on this week's episode of the weekly brew however a senseless act of terrorism on friday evening in paris dictated that we cover this tragic event that took the lives of as of sunday afternoon 132 innocent men women and children the terrorist attack carried out by sympathizers of the islamic state marked the second deadliest attack on a western city since 9-11 Moreover, it's the 28th terrorist attack to kill more than 100 people since 2001. An absolutely tragic event and an ongoing story right now in Paris. Guys, I know we had a group discussion going on Friday, just kind of posting updates as we saw them coming across on various social media sites. As we've had a few di- days to digest this information, what are your immediate thoughts and reactions?
0: I was totally shocked by this attack. Uh, it certainly reminded me of the Charlie Hebdo massacre that occurred uh, back earlier this year. Um, it, it really brought to the forefront the reality uh, of the threat that ISIS poses not only to the Middle East, but now to uh, continental Europe. So I, I was uh, I, w- I was glued to the TV as soon as I heard about it. Um, I, I can't say I'm all that surprised that, that it, it happened in the sense that um, France and uh, many other countries in Central Europe have had a, an, an ongoing problem with um, the Syrian refugee crisis as well as an immigration problem that's been years in uh, progress. So um, I, I, I really my, just, my heart breaks for the families um, involved in this, and um, I, I, I certainly hope that France can uh, get together and formulate a response to uh, you know, take out those uh, held responsible for it.
1: Jeremy, you just mentioned that this was uh, a similar attack to the Charlie Hebdo. But one thing to notice: this is actually the third terrorist attack or attempted terrorist attack to take place in Paris this year. Of course, we had the Charlie Hebdo attack earlier in the year, and then over the summer we had an attempted attack on a train in which two Americans were able to stifle uh, any further damages. Uh, but one thing to note is that uh, France has been open about wanting to respond since this is now you know essentially a war on their turf. Kevin, Zach, I'm curious: what do you guys see as the next step? And do you have any immediate reaction from the the tragic events that took place on Friday? Well, I want to say
2: first that the there is a pri- there's a distinct difference, I guess, between the Hebdo attacks and uh, and these most recent attacks. Um, obviously, the uh, numbers of people that were harmed or killed uh, are different, and ideologically they're different as well. I mean, the Hebdo attacks, uh, which I believe uh, was was that Al Qaeda, I think, was ultimately tied to that. Um, I I can't remember the perpetrators, but they said, I was reading philosophically, those attacks were targeted, were a minority group of people that were um, determined to have had some sort of guilt or political malfeasance in the eyes of the terrorists versus the most recent attack, which is an indiscriminate attack um, and represents kind of an updating in the philosophy of the group. So ISIS, I've been reading, basically has um, disavowed what used to be, I guess, a rule in the terrorist ideology that you don't want to attack or, uh, or be in places where you might kill innocent Muslims. Um, and they've moved away even from that. So it's just discouraging and perplexing to see terrorism grow even more evil. I mean, with each passing year, it, it's, it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm left speechless by it. Honestly. One thing to note is, uh,
1: over this past weekend, more, more and more details have been emerging, uh, from this incident. And, uh, Uh, One thing that we do note is one attacker has been identified as Ismail Omar Mostafi, who is a 29-year-old French citizen and another one that held a Syrian passport. And the manhunt is currently underway for an eighth suspect. Uh, The hunt for possible accomplices has continued, and officials in Belgium have announced seven arrests. And what it looks like is that this is a coordinated attack on separate locations. And it looks right now, early on, that... These attacks were coordinated in a neighboring country in Belgium, which you know I visited earlier this year. Uh, but it seems that there is a growing problem with ISIS right now, not only in the Middle East but also in Western Europe. Zach, I'm curious. How does NATO respond to this, and how does France respond slash the United States? I'm not so sure about NATO, but I think uh, we touched on this about a month ago on one
3: of our podcasts with the, uh, the immigration, the Syrian refugee and the immigration problems that are being faced in Europe. We talked about how there was fear of uh, ISIS using the Syrian refugee sympathies in um, Western uh, countries to infiltrate and uh, set up Possible operations such as this. There have been threats that uh, London, Rome, and Washington D.C. are next, and I think the failure has already occurred. I think the fact that we're having to respond to this instead of the necessary steps having been taken to prevent things like this from happening, um, it's creating a bit of a uh, an issue. Trying to fix something that that has already been that has already begun. So I think uh, one of, one of the steps is um, Europe, uh, you know, taking further steps to try and identify refugees coming in and actually following. Um, You know leads and things. One of the things that I read in an article that we had to prep for this was that uh, normally uh, terrorist attacks like these are sort of a little difficult to track because it usually involves just one or two people. But this was by a collective group of about eight and should have been much more easily trackable. Um, And why and how it wasn't, I don't fully understand. Um, I I don't know where the failure was, if it's with uh, difficulties with the EU or if it's with France in particular. Uh, But I do think that there needs to be much more attention being paid to the immigration uh, that is coming from Syria and those claiming to be Syrian refugees. Um, And I think that could go a long way in trying to help prevent this sort of stuff.
1: With regards to Syrian refugees, I do want to point out that there are thousands of Syrian refugees that are actually fleeing the Middle East because of oppression, because of you know, the ongoing threat of ISIS. I mean, there are legitimate people that are trying to flee this horrid situation that you see in Damascus and uh, other areas in that region. So I I do think we need to differentiate that there are legitimate refugees. But yes, I do think that there are some coming in uh, with malicious intent. Uh, Shortly after the attacks, uh, French President Francois Hollande promised to a grieving nation that, quote, we will lead the fight and it will be merciless. He further went on to say that when terrorists are capable of committing such atrocities. They should be certain that they are facing a determined France, a united France, a France that will not let itself be intimidated, even if today we are expressing endless emotion at the drama and this tragedy. He said that this was an abomination because it was a barbaric attack. Kevin, although it was a barbaric attack, one of the things that we discussed last week on our uh, group thread was that ISIS was being very active in claiming next targets, claiming responsibility for the attack, all on social media. What are your thoughts on how social media is playing into this new age of, you know, terrorism?
2: Oh, I'm absolutely fascinated by it. I'm actually reading uh, some tweets by an Al-Qaeda fighter. Um, Let me see. Uh, Yeah, a Dutch fighter for Al-Qaeda's branch in Syria. Um, I'm going to give you his Twitter handle. It's uh, at Saeed, S-A-E-E-D underscore A-L-H-A-L-A-B-I zero. And um, he's actually tweeting in condemnation of the uh, Islamic State, ISIS, um, despite the fact that he himself is uh, you know a, a jihadist and a, and a terrorist. and it's it's really it's amazing to me how close these. I hesitate to call them people, but these these individuals are to our own lives. I mean, we both went and we looked at um, at that one woman's sister. She called herself uh, Twitter profile, and it was really bizarre and unsettling to be um, figuratively so close uh, and able to have these people reach out to us, communicate with each other, to see people gloating with the hashtag um, "Paris is burning" uh, in Arabic. Was uh, I mean, it was it was it was. my stomach, honestly, and I think that probably a lot of other people felt the same way. A few years ago, Thomas Friedman wrote a book called The World is Flat and How We're
1: Essentially Living in a Globalized Society and We're All Connected. I think now, since social media has really developed more since 2007, 2009, especially with Twitter, you know, you have access to information at your fingertips. And one of the things that I found fascinating. Was just how much this real-time information was developing from Twitter. That's where I first heard the news break. I saw that there were potential terrorist attacks going on in Paris, and then about thirty minutes later, news coverage finally started. So for me, it was just fascinating to follow this information as it developed, and I, I just I think it is crazy, just like you said, that you know people just like us are tweeting, you know, these horde things and, uh, you know, making these communications, trying to recruit potential terrorists, uh, through social media, through these various platforms. And it's, it's going to be interesting to see how the Western world responds and what they can do to, you know, step up and whether it's monitoring this information or, you know, trying to shut them down.
2: Uh, but it's definitely a new age of warfare and, uh, It's definitely fascinating to watch. It's amazing to me because I can't get 500 Twitter followers, but they can get people to join like a jihad over Twitter. And I I just really... They're doing a lot better than I am, I guess. Which is not not funny. It's it's really sad how effective they are at using all of the various forms of media that we have um, to recruit people, to attract people, to radicalize people, and to um, carry out and coordinate these kinds of attacks. Which uh, Michael Morrell, the former CIA deputy director, called them or said these attacks um, had operational sophistication which coming from a guy that used to run the CIA is pretty high praise. That's just, uh, it's scary stuff. One thing to note is police on Friday detained five people in Istanbul.
1: The source told AFP... Including a suspected close associate of the notorious ISIS militant known as "Jihadi John," who Washington believes was likely killed in a recent drone strike in Syria. So it seems that there were other potential terrorist attacks that were stifled over the past weekend. Unfortunately, more than 132 innocent people were killed Friday in Paris as a result of the Islamic State, you know, taking their war to the Western world. Friday morning, in an interview with George Stephanopoulos, President Barack Obama told the ABC reporter that ISIS had, quote, been contained. Later that afternoon, of course, we have the terrorist attacks. Obama pledges solidarity, saying that France is the largest, or France is the most longstanding ally of the United States, and that he will support uh, President Holland and, uh, you know, the French in their response, and essentially said it was a, you know, a declared war on humanity. How does the United States respond to this moving forward? It seems like the current plan for, or handling ISIS, you know, with drone strikes, airstrikes, has just seemed ineffective.
2: I, far from being ineffective, I think that they've actually been agitative. Uh, and I think that what we're seeing is um, a fallout of that. Of course, France was bombing in Syria as well, and some people have linked um, that to the uh, attacks that took place. So, I mean, maybe what we're doing is not only unhelpful, but actually counterproductive. And I don't, am not a policy expert. I don't have an answer, but I would say that I'm certainly discouraged uh, with the direction that we've been going in. It, it definitely does not seem to help. In fact, it seems to hurt.
0: Obama's statements juxtaposed to the events just uh, show how bad his policy is towards the region. Um, I, I think weak is one way it's been described. There are other more colorful, colorful terms that have been used to describe it as well. Um, I, I, I I know that with our airstrikes in Syria against ISIS, um, despite the number of missions reported, I know that not many of them actually engage the enemy due to overly restrictive rules of engagement. Um, and so I, I don't think our, I agree with Kevin. I don't think our policy is working at all. In fact, it's, um, it might serve just because the u.s is in the fight it, it likely serves as a recruiting tool for Isis um, and so I, I I'm, I'm deeply troubled by uh, this president's leadership on this particular issue and um, it's it's only hurting us I mean it's it, it's hurting our allies right now and I but it is not uh, beyond the realm of possibility for this to also happen here um, especially if uh, with the risk of uh, Isis being able to infiltrate these refugee groups um, and make it to our shores I, I don't see uh, it as impossible for this to happen um, here at some point. I hope it doesn't, but um, yeah.
3: Yeah, I I agree. I I am completely uh, ashamed of how this administration has handled for policy uh, and how it has actually done things, as as Kevin mentioned, to further agitate the problem. Uh, I think one of the things that I noted from President Obama's address, uh, you know, or statements after the Paris thing that just kind of goes to to show just kind of like where we stand and why this has become an issue is kind of not acknowledging what the actual issue is. In his statement, he said that this is not just an attack on Paris. It's not just an attack on France, but it's an attack on all of humanity and the universal values that we share. I think the idea of even thinking that all of humanity shares universal values is a complete farce. And that's what has created this sense of like, we can all just be friends and sing kumbaya and hold hands and just respect and and coexist as the bumper sticker says. Uh, the fact is, um, not everyone in all of humanity shares the same universal values, and you have these radical extremists, you have different opposing worldviews um, that take uh, hostile action against opposing worldviews, and refusing to acknowledge that, that there, are, there are not universal values that all of humanity shares is what's, you know, you're, you're ignoring the actual problem that is creating this sense of radical militant Islam.
1: I do want to step in there and say that I I do think people are generally good. I do think people generally have solid values, and there are universal values. I think that this is a small group of people that are just batshit crazy.
3: The idea that this is just a small number of people worldwide that believe in this radicalized militant doctrine is just wrong. It's estimated that about 10% of worldwide Islam... And let's not forget that these terrorist groups, ISIS and Al-Qaeda and all of those like them, identify themselves as being Muslim. This is not an argument of whether or not these terrorist groups represent the true Islam. They are identifying themselves as being Muslim. And for the sake of these numbers, we need to keep that in mind. It's estimated that about 10% of all Islam believes in this radicalized militant jihad doctrine. There are 1.6 billion Muslims worldwide. Even if only 10% of Muslims believe in this radicalized doctrine, that's one and a half million people worldwide who believe in killing people like you and me and all of us simply for the sake of jihad. I certainly don't consider one and a half million people to be a small number of people that believe in such a, a, have such a worldview such as this of just killing innocent people in, Atrocious acts such as 9/11, Paris, and just countless others that we have seen in our lifetime.
2: When you talk about radicalized Islam or radicalized Muslims, I I think back to to draw an analogy like the um, the abortion clinic bombings that are carried out by people who are purportedly or in name Christian, um, and I don't consider them. To have a grasp on what Christianity is, or to be part of Christianity, and certainly they're not supported by any uh, churches that I believe are um, grounded in Christian faith. And so I think it's it's misleading to say you know ten percent of Islam is though they're all part of one group or sect, um, and we can sort of you know judgment one into the poll. I think that that sort of extremist action and terrorism is radically different, and I just the same way I don't look at those people as being Christians, quote unquote. I don't necessarily look at the terrorists as being radicalized. Um, you know, Muslims, uh, so much as they are just jihadists and, and, and almost an entirely different sect of people? Because I think I could, we could hear a lot of rhetoric about radicalized Islam, and it's sort of um, exclusionary. I think it contributes to the problems that groups have communicating with one another instead of instead of helping to increase that communication.
0: To add on to that, Kevin, I, I, I do think it's it's a mistake to equate what we're seeing right now within the Muslim world with any other religious group. I mean, we're just talking a numbers game. Uh, there is no equivalency. I mean, the, the rise of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, I mean, it, it, you know, uh, what we see in Israel and other parts of the world, um, it, it is a problem within Islam. And it is something that the moderates in Islam have to address. And certainly something that I've, some positive action I've seen is um, some more moderate imams have sort of stepped up and condemned this sort of thing. Um, but it is, a, it is a problem. I feel like it's... Um, that is particular to islam as a as a as a religion so i what what is what is especially concerning in looking at the aftermath of this attack is that um the, there is for a number of years now um, there are a lot of young muslims that feel this Tension between their religious identity and the secularism of the French state, and you sort of have ISIS and Al Qaeda and other organizations like it beckoning as this sort of perverse sense of purpose for them. Um, it, it, they 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 take advantage of this powerful pull of religious identity that puts them at odds with sort of the liberal Western democracy and values that we all hold dear. So um, it, it is it, it is a it is a clash of cultures, and it's unfortunate that it's happened this way, but. Um, I think it's hard to ignore that and say this is a this is a problem, you know, like with generic extremism or something like that. And there isn't something particular to Islam. And that's um, I I think that that's that's all you can say about it.
3: I I don't entirely disagree with your assessment there, Kevin. Um, But I think in that is that if if that is, in fact, the case, if what we are seeing here, because these these ISIS and Al Qaeda, these the radical Islams, they are associating themselves with Islam. Um, And if that, in fact, is just a perverted form of Islam and not true, quote unquote, Islam, um, where is the 90 percent of of, uh, Islam standing up to actually fight against that? In in my opinion, they should be at the forefront of saying these 10 percent of radicalized, that does not represent true Islam and leading the fight against this sort of um, injustice.
1: One thing to note right now, while we are recording uh, ISIS has just reported that France will remain at the top of its targets, and uh, French defense officials have actually just released that they have coordinated massive airstrikes to to destroy two jihadi sites in Raqqa, Syria. So it looks like the French
2: uh, military is stepping up right now to proactively respond to the terrorist attacks that took place on Friday. It's more of the same, and and that sort of reaction, um, while warranted, uh, ultimately only creates more extremism, I think, and more people that are disenfranchised or have relatives that have been killed or who have a reason to be angry with the Western world. And it just, I don't know if there's a solution. I'm not advocating anything in particular, but it makes me very nervous and very scared to hear that news. It's definitely going to be interesting to follow as the issue of ISIS is not
1: going away anytime soon. And, and from a domestic perspective, I think it's going to be interesting to see how the presidential candidates moving into 2016 handle this. I think foreign policy is going to become more and more of an issue, especially if these terrorists uh, continue to attack the Western world. I think national security might be a topic heading into 2016. Uh, One of the things just to tease right now, we are going to have an interview with Alfonso Olvera, who is a native uh, from the Woodlands, Texas. He'll be joining us shortly here on the Weekly Brew. Uh, He actually landed in Paris, Shortly after the attacks on Friday, so that will be a great interview. Go ahead and stay looking forward to that. But uh, guys, uh, just to reiterate, uh, the French Defense Ministry is reporting that France has dropped 20 bombs on de facto ISIS capital of Raqqa, targeting command post and terrorist training camp. Again, this is... Breaking news as we are recording on Sunday afternoon, and this is going to be an ongoing thing as we move into the week. And France, as well as Western allies, continue to respond. But I, I just want to say that uh, I, I do think this is a an issue that the world does need to address. And I'm honestly not sure what the solution is. I don't know if the current policy is correct. I don't know if there needs to be changes. Uh, But it's definitely a new animal uh, that we are facing that uh, is waging wars on various fronts, whether it's, uh, you know, terrorism, whether it's social media, it's it's
2: fascinating to me how this is all. Uh, you know, warfare has essentially changed. And Jeremy, I think it was you that said that um, the current presidential administration uh, maybe isn't aggressive enough or is uh, hampered by uh, restrictive rules of engagement. But, you know, I was just thinking, didn't we just bomb a hospital in Afghanistan not like two months ago? Uh, I mean, that was a a failure with the rules of engagement.
0: I think there's a difference between uh, what was a mistake. uh, It was a mistaken identity in that particular case. But um, I, I, I do know... And looking at uh, various outlets, um, especially from the standpoint of the military, and knowing what they need to win, uh, there ha- there have been several. Uh, I mean, it it happens daily where there is a target, but it's too close to a civilian target, or it's there's some criteria it doesn't meet, and so we're not able to bomb it. Um, one, one remark that was made that was, uh, Russia who is not so concerned about those sorts of things would actually able, would actually be able to make more progress than we would because they just, um, they just don't care. So I'm not, I'm not totally sure about, uh, what the rules of engagement are, but I, I, get the general sense from looking at, uh, some news outlets that they are overly restrictive and they don't allow us to, um, prosecute ISIS as well as we could.
2: Do you envy Russia's lack of concern for civilian casualties?
0: No, I don't envy their lack of concern, but I also understand that what war is and what war isn't. Um, there are inevitably civilian casualties in any conflict, and to, to think that you can't have them is it's naive, and it, it's almost ignoring uh, the reality of uh, what is uh, armed conflict in the 21st century. So, in fact, I, I know, I mean, there is no country on the planet that tries to avoid civilian casualties like the U.S. does. Uh, so no, I, I do not envy Russia's disregard, but I also um, I, I wish that we were a little bit more aggressive in prosecuting this. And the sentiment from the Obama administration just does not tell me that they are really serious about fighting ISIS. They I don't think that they recognize it as a serious problem.
3: Well, not only do they not see it as a serious problem, they see it as a small problem that they've already got contained. As as Obama said before all of this happened, they think they got this under control. And clearly they don't. But just to
1: reiterate, this is not a problem just unique to the U.S. Uh, You know, this is definitely something that the Western world and the rest of the world does not have contained. Uh, So I I, I think that... Some sort of solution needs to be addressed. Uh, ISIS is definitely a growing threat, as it appears, uh, and I think they're going to only be more dangerous, as again, they tweeted on Friday that Washington, Rome, and London are next. It's an ongoing issue, and something has to be done to mitigate any future risk to innocent civilians.
0: You're listening to The Weekly Brew.
1: Now joining us on The Weekly Brew is Alfonso Olvera, uh, a native of the Woodlands, Texas, who was actually in Paris uh, just shortly after the tragic terrorist attack that happened last Friday? Alfonso, first off, if you can, uh, can you just go ahead and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and kind of your story on how you got to Paris and what your purpose for the trip was?
4: Yeah, I was traveling to Paris so that I could celebrate. This is a uh, trip that we had planned uh, months in advance. Uh, my fiance and I are here, and uh, we were actually in Washington while the attacks were happening uh we were flying up to paris um i'm originally from uh, the woodlands texas as you said and um i was uh, planning a trip to celebrate my birthday and and come up here to see a couple of concerts uh in uh, france and and spain and um so yeah that's that's basically the background of the trip we were just celebrating my birthday my fiance and i
1: what was it like? for you? I mean, you landed, from what I understand, just about 12 hours following the attacks. And uh, you know, there was a lot of chaos uh, with, with the French officials saying that they might shut down uh, the borders and uh, ground air flights. What was it for you landing and just experiencing kind of being thrown into that chaos and panic in the country?
4: For us, it was a conscious decision to come up here, even though we knew that there was uh, this going on. and. Um basically we had already boarded the plane uh whenever we started hearing news about the the attacks and when we realized that it was something serious and um we we decided to go on with our trip and maybe uh worst case scenario is that whenever we landed in paris we would take another flight somewhere else um, until the situation kind of calmed down um so we got here into paris and Fortunately enough, I had Wi-Fi on the plane, so I could monitor the situation and make some decisions. But um, while I was on the plane, we made the decision to actually stay here in Paris. Um, there were some rumors about uh, London being another ta- uh, target, Rome being another target. So we said, you know, if this if this already happened here, it, it would be very unusual for something else to happen uh, right after. So we decided to stay
3: here alfonso at what point did you realize that it was as serious as what it was it wasn't for me until later in the day after a few notifications that it really kind of set in as to what actually was going on so was it you know before you left ec or like sometime on the plane while you were monitoring with the wi-fi that you fully realized what was going on
4: so whenever we were uh boarding the plane and the cabin door was actually closed uh, more news started coming in and the pilots said that allowed anybody that wanted to get off the plane to actually do that and there were a lot of passengers that got off the plane um, we, we didn't do that um, we figured it was, it was easier to just come in and figure out what we would do while actually being in Europe so we did that but I think the main tipping point was when we heard about uh, the hostages at the concert hall, the, the Bataclan at that point, we really thought it was very, very serious because you're not talking about just uh, shooting at a restaurant where, you know, a couple people got uh, shot, but this was over 100 people being taken hostage. And then I think somebody tweeted from inside saying that they were actually shooting them one by one. So that that's that that was a tipping point where we realized that this was something of a really great magnitude.
1: You know, I've traveled uh, several times internationally. And uh, usually when you land in a country, you've got to go through customs, uh, immigration, that sort of thing. And and, and typically, it's not a, a cumbersome process. I, I imagine you've traveled uh, quite a bit internationally. What was different about landing in Paris in terms of security? Was, was it, there were a heightened sense of security when you landed at, I assume, Charles de Gaulle?
4: So I've been to Paris uh, many times before. And... Uh, um the interesting thing is that landing in the airport and yes there was a long line for crossing the, the border the customs but uh, they never shut down the airport and the officials uh when they saw my passport they didn't ask one single question so i didn't really feel that there was tightened security at the at the airport we did see some military at the airport but uh in all honesty that that's something that i've seen before and i i didn't think anything of it so I was expecting hours of uh, delays crossing customs, and we didn't really feel that. So, yeah.
2: So you originally intended to go see uh, some concerts that were canceled. So I guess you have been touring uh, some of the sites there. I was curious, what's your itinerary been since you've landed and uh, kind of started looking at these sites? And uh, what has your impression been of these places that have been attacked?
4: We landed about 12 12 hours, actually less than 12 hours uh, from when the, the attack had happened. And so we didn't really know what to expect once we got into the city. We didn't know if it was going to be in complete lockdown, no people on the streets. Um, We really didn't know. I I guess that's what I was expecting, is maybe we'll go into our hotel and and stay at our hotel, uh, and that's it. Um, So my original original itinerary is to spend three days here in Paris and then go to Lyon and then to Barcelona. um, We decided to come into Paris. Uh, knowing that there was something going on and then take it from there and kind of play it by ear. Um, so we came into Paris and we checked into our hotel. And at that point, while we were driving to our hotel, we saw a lot of people on the streets. We saw, you know, moms with their children walking the streets. So so it was, it was a bit surprising that the city wasn't in complete lockdown, as some of the media outlets uh, made it seem like. And, you know, we thought that, that maybe the, the situation wasn't as bad on the streets as we would have expected. So in checked into our, into our hotel, and then we decided to go for a walk and to be completely honest with you guys is that uh, we, we thought that if we hadn't heard what happened on the news, we wouldn't even have realized that something happened because people were just taking strolls to the street, restaurants were open, businesses were open, um, the city was, was alive, and um, that, that's how it is right now, uh, in some way. Now, we came in on a Saturday. And Saturdays and Sundays in Paris are pretty quiet, so we thought it was completely normal. And from from talking to people here and the locals, they say that there's definitely fewer people on the streets, but it's absolutely not a complete shutdown of the city. The, the city is uh, it's open. It's not in complete lockdown whatsoever. And the borders were actually never completely closed. Um, I don't know if that was a decision that was made or... Uh, they were just unable to to close the borders off completely
1: again we have Alfonso olvera joining us on the weekly brew and uh you mentioned that uh on on a facebook post that paris doesn't look scared what would you describe as the kind of overall mood in paris right now i mean is it is it more unity and people rallying around each other and kind of standing up and saying hey we're not going to let this terrorist attack affect us
4: so yesterday we we visited we went and walked to the Eiffel Tower, and everything seemed pretty normal to me. We went to a couple of restaurants, a couple of bars, and we really didn't think anything of it. We stayed away from the zone because the shootings happened in a considerably, uh, except for the one at the, at the stadium. We stayed um, away from that from that particular zone, and we decided to visit that zone today. And I, I still think that... Uh, that, that a lot of businesses in Paris closed, but a lot of businesses, and I would say most of the businesses carried on and, uh, and went on with their, with their business and a lot of patrons and, and the restaurants and bars. So I think that it was, it was definitely a surprise to see people, uh, walking the streets and going to restaurants and bars and terraces and actually, you know, continuing with, with their lives. But, um, but but there's also another side side of it. We went to uh, we went to the actual sites of where the shootings happened. Um, some of the sites they have completely cordoned off, so you can't really see what's going on. Um, a lot of media outlets shooting uh, their their reports over there. A lot of reporters. Um, the restaurants where the shootings happened, we went uh, there, and that's completely open. That's not cordoned off. Um, but I guess that area of Paris is, has a different mood at this point.
3: You you mentioned that you were at the Eiffel Tower yesterday?
4: I was at the Eiffel Tower yesterday, and uh, everything seemed pretty normal. There, there was obviously a heightened uh, security operative right there. The actual Eiffel Tower itself, it's closed. All the public um, facilities, like museums and um, any, any other sightseeing that is handled by the by the government, like like the Eiffel Tower, is completely closed. But a lot of tourists there, uh, which seemed pretty normal. So definitely saw more people than I would have expected um, on the streets.
3: Reason why I ask, I received a, a notification yesterday around three o'clock our time here Central Time. Um, so I think that would that be about nine o'clock, ten o'clock there in Paris, that the Eiffel Tower had been evacuated. Um, is that were you around there at that around that time or do you happen to know what was going on to cause that evacuation
4: no I got into the hotel about 11 o'clock uh, in the morning and I was at the Eiffel Tower around one o'clock and didn't see anything that's that's the first time I hear of this so it's it's, it's, it's it probably happened I'm, I'm I'm just not aware of it
2: Wanted to uh, say to our listeners, and uh, we appreciate you doing this course. Uh, Alfonso's agreed to share some of his images um, with us uh, from the attack sites and kind of touring around Paris. So if you want to check our Facebook uh, and our Twitter, we'll be putting some of those out. Um, probably where you found uh, this audio. So we appreciate that, and uh, appreciate the perspective, Alfonso.
4: Absolutely.
1: Again, this is Alfonso Olvera, uh, who was in Paris just a few hours shortly after the attacks. And Alfonso, we thank you for uh, calling in kind of late on a Sunday evening there in Paris. And uh, we hope you have a a great rest of the trip in Europe. And uh, thanks again for joining us on The Weekly Brew.
4: No worries. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Take care. Stay safe. Thanks.
1: Thanks again to Alfonso Olvera for taking the time out of his day as he is traveling in Europe right now. Again, he called us around uh, 11 p.m. from Paris, and uh, I thought it was nice to hear a first-person perspective uh, from someone who arrived in Paris shortly after the tragic events that took place on Friday. Uh, Kevin, what were your thoughts from
2: Alfonso's interview? Oh, incredibly articulate and uh, and a great interview, Fonzie, uh, an old buddy of mine from high school. Uh, We used to play some music together and uh, I miss you, man. It was good to hear from you and I was glad to hear that you were safe And I just appreciate you coming on. That was a really good look into what's going on in the ground there. And I think a valuable perspective into what the city is like after the tragedy.
0: You're listening to the Weekly Brew.
1: So while Saturday generally dictates college football here in the United States, uh, a lot of folks turn their eyes to Melbourne, Australia, as Ronda Rousey, who is arguably the biggest name in UFC fighting right now, was a 20-to-1 favorite over Holly Holm, who was 10-0 in MMA and 3-0 in UFC fights, and uh, Holm actually pulled off quite the upset in the second round as she knocked out Ronda Rousey in the 59-second mark in the second round, and just absolutely chaos ensued, and I, I think definitely here in the United States, a lot of folks were stunned uh, that Rowdy Ronda Rousey was knocked out and uh, did any of you guys get to see the fight or have any reaction from this?
0: I, I, I didn't get to see the fight, but um, I know that uh, uh, home has a, has a history of, of you know, being able to uh, take on really talented fighters and win um, going all the way back. She's defeated Christy Martin, uh, Mia St. John. Um, and then she also was able to defeat and uh, Sophie Mathis in 2011. So um, it's not surprising actually that uh, she was able to take out Rousey. So um. I really I actually really wasn't repressed.
2: Well, watching the uh, fight on YouTube as I did after the fact for the YouTube was pulled. I mean, it was violent. It was very violent. And I got to say, this is exactly the reason I don't typically uh, like pay-per-view boxing, things like that, is it's just hard to philosophically morally support blood sports. And uh, yeah, Rousey just got her butt kicked. Um and what's interesting to me is that Holmes actually now, uh, I guess, a champion in both sports uh, boxing. She was a boxer beforehand. Uh, she was 33-2-3 and three as a professional boxer and now is a UFC fighter. So um, I, I, what are your guys' feelings? I didn't like Ronda Rousey. I never liked her. Uh, she was uh, kind of annoying, I thought. Um, I never liked her chirping much, and I felt like she got what was coming to her. What do you guys think? I think she's definitely uh, an interesting case study. Uh, she's you know, a little bit
1: arrogant, but I think that comes with confidence in the fact that she's destroyed so many of her previous competitors. But uh, one thing that I did find interesting is on October 7th, earlier this year, she was discussing the upcoming fight with uh, Holly Holm. And she told uh, Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show uh, that Holm was probably going to, quote, keep far away from me and keep... F- keep me frustrated to a point where I'll make a mistake and she'll try to kick me in the head, but it's not going to go like that. Uh, So I thought it was kind of interesting that she essentially predicted the way that she was going to get knocked out. And uh, she said that it wasn't going to happen, but obviously Rousey was frustrated in the the fight and, uh, you know, was KO'd in the second round. But it's kind of interesting to see how the sports media has almost put her on a pedestal. I mean, it's it's something I, I... I honestly don't follow UFC and, and, and fighting that much. Uh, but, you know, everyone's saying that, you know, she needs to fight, uh, you know, Floyd Mayweather. Uh, so it's just I I don't know. I, I don't know if she's actually as talented as people say she is or she just sen- sen- if she is just sensationalized by the media to create uh, more awareness for the sport. Uh, I, I'm not sure. And honestly, I don't know what I think about Rousey as a character. She definitely uh, is a spark plug for the media.
2: Will you go see her in Roadhouse? Are you aware of this? So they are remaking Patrick's, the rebooting, I guess, Patrick Swayze's Roadhouse, and Rondi, uh, Rondi, Ronda Rousey, the uh, is going to be the female protagonist of the movie in this reboot. Um, and so that's kind of, I mean, maybe she's taking too much time to do movies. She is very famous now. I do think that that sort of um, new platform does detract from focus and determination. It's basically Rocky Three, uh, unless you view Home as being the Rocky character. Then it's Rocky Two. But it's interesting, um, all the attention that surrounds her. I just, frankly, I'm happy about it. Uh, I think that the uh, the fighter I would have preferred to see win this did, and Rousey uh, didn't just lose, but lost in a pretty demoralizing fashion. The most interesting thing to me uh, is the amount of hype that Rousey had led to an interesting scenario in Vegas sports books. So, as you mentioned earlier, she was like a 20 to 1 or higher favor uh, favorite in some sports books, um, and so. Predictably, there was a lot of uh, betting, a lot of underdog betting. And uh, according to an article I'm reading from USA Today, um, the results around town were not good. Uh, And this is from Jay Cornegie, vice president of the Westgate Las Vegas Sportsbook. Most books got crushed as typical underdog betting was popular. Because basically, you had to put 900 on Rousey to win 100. You could wager 100 on Holm to win 600. So these underdog bets apparently killed sportsbooks across the town. So the hype was bad for everyone, including Rousey. Um, so he's saying the rematch should be huge. Hopefully they'll recoup their losses. But the most interesting bet that was placed, I think, was uh, actually by Holly Holmes' team. Um, there's also an article also from USA Today where uh, her manager, Lenny Fresquez, admits that the team pulled their resources. Um, and won a, quote, six-figure sum by betting on their fighter to defeat Ronda Rousey. So they were one of the groups that helped crush the sports books, And uh, it's just a really entertaining story, I think. I'm kind of surprised that's even allowed or legal, but I guess that UFC has a, uh, an amicable relationship with Vegas and with gambling. Um, certainly not something you'd see in the NFL.
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely uh, something that we would not see in the NFL or Major League Baseball. But I wonder if there are some policies in place that say that you cannot bet against yourself, but you can bet for yourself. Uh, but, you know, I, I that's kind of cool, the fact that her staff believed in her so much that they put their money where their mouth is, and uh, they were rewarded nicely as a result.
0: I know why Rousey lost. She recently came out and supported Bernie Sanders for president and made her weak.
1: Switching gears here for a moment from Ronda Rousey, let's go ahead and talk about football. Uh, Quite the entertaining game here in Houston as the University of Houston Cougars and Coach Tom Herman in their H-Town takeover knocked off, previously undefeated uh, prior to last week, Memphis and, uh, or knocked off Memphis in a quite a remarkable way uh, coming back from, I believe, three scores. Kevin, I know that you're a U of H alum and, a, you know, kind of a diehard supporter of the Houston Cougars. What were your thoughts to see the University of Houston rally, move to 10 and 0 on the season, and uh, now up to number 13 or 14 in the college football rankings?
2: First of all, I'd just like to point out, where did you learn to say the word Houston? Because I've heard you say it a number of times now, and it's like Houston. You live here, dude. What What is that uh, pronunciation that you have? Hey, that's the way I was uh, raised. Very northeastern sounding for me. We say Houston down here, but in uh, any case, University of Houston. I will tell you something. I will tell you something. So, uh, when I was
1: a freshman in college, uh, I remember I was going through a drive through at, uh, I don't know, like let's say it's a Wendy's or Chick-fil-A, but one of the people there actually asked me if I was from up north. And interestingly enough, I was, you know, a little irritated as a lifelong Texan. Uh, and just a few months before I was actually at Harvard, uh, for debate tournament, I was in debate in high school and, uh, we actually had uh, some people come up to us from, I guess, Philadelphia, and they thought that we looked like locals because we were wearing Red Sox gear after we had just been to Fenway Park. And uh, we told them that, you know, we were from Texas, and uh, we didn't know exactly uh, the location that they were looking for. But one of the uh, the, the women uh, who was asking for direction, she was a lo- she was an older lady. Uh, she told me that she thought I was from Boston because of my accents. And I, you know, again, I i I've, I've heard this for about the last ten to fifteen years, and I don't understand. I mean, I'm born and raised in the Woodlands, in Houston,
2: Texas. And if you talk to anybody in my family, I mean, they have Texas accents. You sound so proud to be confused with these Northerners, too. I know you say you're born and bred here, but uh, I don't know, man. I don't hear the pride when you talk about being confused for a local up north.
1: (laughs) No, I don't think it's pride at all. But uh, switching gears, let's talk about H-Town. How about that? H-Town, Space City, H-Town Takeover. Kevin, (laughs) what are your thoughts after the university coming back from a huge deficit and pulling to 10-0 on the season?
2: It's been a long, long time since I've had that kind of moment. Um, full disclosure: I wasn't watching on television. I wasn't at the game, sadly. I actually was coming from a high school game that I was covering as part of my job. But I did have the radio on as I was writing my article, and I sort of put everything down as things started to kind of snowball. And I was texting with my father, who was a big booster and was there in the stadium, so I felt very connected to that moment. And the call was chilling. I mean, especially as they lined up for that kick, and uh, Jake Elliott missed, despite being one of the better kickers in NCAA football. I mean, it just felt like a moment of. Death. Destiny. I remember being kind of a wash in a glow um, that I haven't had as a sports fan for, for quite some time. It's been very disappointing to be a Houston fan um, for the most part, uh, particularly a University of Houston fan. And so it was a special moment for me. Um, what made it more significant, of course, was their Heisman Trophy candidate. Um, he actually got a letter from the uh, Heisman Trophy Trust signifying he is a candidate. Uh, Greg Ward Jr. was out uh, and actually was ineffective through most of the first two quarters. And it was um, it was Kyle. Postma that came in uh, the uh, backup quarterback who was the third string quarterback a couple of weeks ago has just kind of ascended, and it just felt like a moment of destiny. He came in through 21 of 33 for 236 yards and a touchdown and actually ran for another 49 yards and uh, and ran for the game-winning touchdown. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, the kick missed there. It's just everything seemed to line up, and it was a brilliant, happy, ecstatic moment for me. And I'm still, I'm still basking in it, honestly.
1: Yeah, you could definitely hear the excitement coming from you right now, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see what the College Football Playoff Committee does Uh, Last week, they had the University of Houston ranked at number 24 in their poll. And this week, they have another big game against Navy coming up. But I wouldn't say it's too far fetched to see, uh, you know, possibly U of H getting a bid into a January bowl game. I don't think they're going to make the top four, but, you know, who knows? Stranger things have happened. But it's great to see, uh, you know, the city of you know, the city come around and support the Cougars and uh, coach Herman has done a heck of a job with the team. And honestly, it's, it's going to be interesting to see if, if they're able to keep him on staff next year, or if he decides to leave and go to one of the bigger jobs that is currently one of the bigger jobs that are currently available at the moment.
3: I totally caught you skipping over saying
2: Houston. again. <laughs> He's got to do it now. He's got a handicap.
0: I'm really interested to see, you know, with Houston doing as well as it has been, I I actually really am impressed with the U of H football program, not just this year, but in um, consecutive years now. Um, I'm interested to see. I'm looking at the Big 12 uh, scoreboard right now. I don't see Oklahoma State going undefeated. And so I can see another nightmare scenario for the Big 12 here heading into the playoff. I mean, there's a possibility that we have a team that doesn't make it. um, that are our champion, our conference champion. Uh, doesn't make it this year so I'm curious in terms of big 12 expansion if um, a team like Houston might might be uh, on the ballot there um, so I don't know I, that's just a, just a random thought I'm, I'm having right now but um, it looks like it might be a real possibility so because I I think that I think they would bring luck to the conference to be honest with you
2: well you guys have heard me talk about this before I'm still very bitter because it was essentially Baylor uh, and Baylor's money and financial resources that kept us out of the Big 12 when it was originally formed Uh, of course we're all Southwestern Conference um, alumni and so I think that I my hatred for Baylor would be mitigated somewhat if we were in the Big 12 and we did have uh, a Big 12 schedule and all the uh, advantages that come with that in terms of recruiting and so forth and so uh, you guys know I don't like Baylor and certainly love to see him lose this week Um, but that that hatred might actually decrease a little bit if we finally get into the Big 12 where we belong uh, and and sort of right the wrongs from uh, a few years ago and just as a correction uh, they're actually playing Connecticut this week Uh, it's next week uh, the 27th they'll play Navy so two weeks until the big game really and one thing to note is that U of H has had horrible attendance this year at games and Coach Herman
1: has called out the fans on several occasions I believe uh, prior to this Memphis game they had been averaging around 25 to 26,000 which is quite pathetic if you're attempting to get into a power conference such as the Big 12. So uh, if U of H, you know, they have the facilities, they have the the investment that the athletic department and the university is willing to make. Uh, So I think that if they do want to get into a power conference such as the Big 12, the fan base needs to step up and actually support
2: the team more than just one game a year. I hear the uh, condescension, the, the Big 12, Baylor condescension in your voice there. But they are stepping their game up. The uh, I don't think Herman called out uh, the fans so much. I think it was more like an exhortation to do something, and they did. They answered that call. I don't think there's any contention there. So um, I think that it's headed in the right direction. I think that the Big 12 would be foolish not to have us. Uh, we bring a lot to the table. I sound defensive and like I'm pleading. I can hear it in my voice, actually. But, uh, but come on. Come on, guys. That's where we belong is the Big 12. Speaking of Big 12 football,
1: uh, some shakeups in the standings yesterday, previously undefeated Baylor fell at home to Oklahoma for their first home loss since 2012. TCU squeaked by uh, a a winless Kansas team, and it took a ferocious rally from Oklahoma State to stay undefeated as they topped off Iowa State. And uh, next week, of course, there's another big set of games as TCU heads to Norman to take on uh, what seems to be the Big 12 frontrunner right now in Oklahoma, and Baylor heads to Stillwater to take on Oklahoma State. Jeremy, I know that you were in Waco yesterday. What were your thoughts from the game? Any, Any quick reaction?
0: Being at the Baylor game, uh, it was it was rough. Um, it was rough to see our quarterback struggle as much as he did. He is a true freshman, and I think that is showing. Um, I also think uh, our defense needs a lot of work. I, I'm really disappointed in Phil Bennett. I think uh, after as many years as he's had to get this defense together, allowing that many points at home um, is, a, is a real tragedy. Um, I, I, I can't help but think that if Seth Russell were, were still healthy, uh, we would not have been in this situation. Um our defense, of course, is sort of notoriously bad uh, sometimes in big games and uh, i I can't help but think that he would have helped us at least put forty or fifty on the board to to come out and beat o u but um I don't know, man, I'm, I'm honestly still kind of in shock. I, I, I hope we still have a chance, but uh, a couple things need to happen. If Baylor's going to make the college football playoff.
2: Well, I'm curious, especially you guys being Baylor, uh, fans and, and alumni. Uh, what do you think about the ranking where they dropped to? Uh, I got number 10, I think in the uh, coaches poll and, uh, Number, yeah, number ten in the AP poll as well.
1: Honestly, for me, I don't know that it's a huge deal. I mean, I think Baylor is still in striking distance if they do take care of business, if they do beat Oklahoma State and they do beat TCU. I mean, both of those wins would come on the road. And yesterday there was a ton of chaos in college football. I mean, the Pac-12 essentially eliminated themselves from playoff contention as you know Stanford goes down to Oregon. So essentially, you're going to have. If the Pac-12 wants to make it in, they're going to have to have a two-loss team make it. So there's just so much chaos that can happen in these next three to four weeks as we wind down the college football season. So for me, falling to 10 isn't necessarily a bad thing, especially with a backup freshman quarterback. And right now, Baylor is still in position uh, you know, for maybe an outside shot at a Big 12 championship, but I still think they're in pretty good shape for a solid bowl game, possibly in New Orleans in the Sugar Bowl against an SEC team.
3: I actually disagree. I'm coming at it from a little bit more of a pessimistic side. I think think we're going to fall somewhere in the teens, uh, honestly, at least in the college football playoff rankings. I think what you've seen has been a long time coming. Um, I think having Stidham and a true freshman quarterback in, I played a little bit into it, but the uh, the defense um, has been exposed all year long. It just hasn't mattered because we've been putting up 60 plus points a game. Um, And I don't see particularly with the types of teams that we're playing going forward in both OSU and TCU that they are not also going to be able to exploit. And both of those are also road games. And Baylor has traditionally performed much worse on the road than they have at home. Uh, so I would not be surprised to see if Baylor takes at least one, possibly two more losses um, this year, they might surprise me and come out and uh, and win out. But even still, I think the way the college football uh, playoff is set up, um, I don't I don't think I think we're done uh, contending. I think the only Big Twelve team left that has a shot at at uh, making it is um, either Oklahoma State or uh, or Oklahoma. And Oklahoma State only if they go undefeated. I think Oklahoma is the uh, only uh, Big 12 team that has a shot of making the college football playoff with one loss.
2: Yeah, on the on the ranking thing, um, I have heard some things on social media from from Homer fans. And I am a Homer Houston fan. But uh, 13-14, whatever we're nestled at, depending on the poll, um, kind of behind all the one-loss teams and ahead of all the two-loss teams feels just right to me. I don't... As a Houston fan, traditionally, historically, I feel like we've um, we've had missteps when we've been uh, contenders or ranked too high. Uh, and like any team, we do well when we have sort of the underdog complex. Um, and so I feel like that ranking, um, any lower, like 15 or lower, would be kind of insulting being placed behind one of those two lost teams, I think would be kind of insulting. But I don't know if we deserve to be placed ahead of, say, like a Baylor or a Michigan State. Um, so I, to me, if we're questioning the Houston ranking, Um, you know, I'd love to say that we ought to be number one, but uh, in reality, I think it's probably just right. Again, a lot of football left to be played and the only
1: poll that matters is the one that comes out on December 6th as the college football playoff. Many will announce their final top 25 poll and setting up the college football playoff. So definitely a lot of season to play and uh, it's going to be interesting to see how these Texas teams finish the season down the stretch
0: closing time
1: so we just wrapped our 15th recording of the weekly brew podcast and a lot of fun today we we talked about isis we talked about the paris attacks and we had a a great interview from uh, alfonso olvera who joined us from paris on the phone Uh, guys what were your impressions from today's episode
0: Uh, i had a lot of fun recording it i i think um i'm in a somber mood uh both because of uh losing but more obviously because of uh, what happened in paris so um I'll be looking forward to uh, what happens this week and uh, talking about it next week with you guys. So um, also a uh, moral from today. Uh, if you support Bernie Sanders for president, <laughs> you will fight like a weenie and lose MMA fights. So it's just, that the, it's just that simple.
1: And I guess before we wrap up uh, Kevin, go ahead and tell the listeners one more time, how they can find us on social media and about our sponsor, we Desserts.
2: Absolutely. I'm also glad that we taught you how to pronounce Houston because that had been something that I would gotten some feedback on, actually. Other people have noticed that. That's not just me. And you say Houston a lot because we're based in Houston. So, uh, you know, either... Say it correctly, or, or you actually did a good job of sort of dancing around it, so uh, I appreciate that as well. But um, yeah, our sponsor, uh, we are very proud and happy to be sponsored by Wee Desserts. I mentioned before, that's we, uh, as in something a French woman would say uh, in the boudoir. Uh, that's O U I, We Desserts. And they serve beignets on Fridays and Saturdays. So I think that uh, we've talked a little bit. I'm going to try to get out there on Saturday to We Desserts and have some beignets. Austin, I believe you're going to try to get out there as well. Absolutely. Hope to be there. Yeah. So that's uh, We Desserts 3411 Kirby. You can look them up. They're also on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter uh, under We Desserts. And it's worth noting um, that we are also on all of those platforms now. So we mentioned earlier in the show Instagram at Weekly Brewcast, Twitter at Weekly Brewcast, and on Facebook slash Weekly Brewcast. I believe. So we would love to have our uh, listeners interact with us. We know that there are listeners because they've been showing up at the bakery, getting their 10% discount, which is fantastic. We appreciate the business. We appreciate you going out there. Um, But we'd also love to hear from you on those platforms and have you share our media with other people that you like so that we can can interact with them and uh, be part of their lives as well. So we appreciate you guys listening. We love all of our listeners. Simply because you listen, no matter how terrible of a person you may be otherwise, and uh, and we're glad to have you. Well, thanks for that uh, glowing review there, Kevin. Uh, you know, and this is the
1: first time that all four of us have been on the mic together and just probably about a month, actually. So Zach, it was nice to have you back on board this week joining us on the weekly Brew podcast. and uh, Jeremy, always good to have you on Kevin. Thanks again for your insight and uh, look forward to getting together next week and chatting uh, whatever topics may develop this upcoming week. But in the meantime, for my co hosts, Jeremy Paxton, Kevin Cook, and Zach Taylor, my name's Austin Statton, and we'll see you next week.
0: You've been listening to The Weekly Brew.